I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum. Oh, shit. Oh. And welcome to Spoiler Alert, episode 61 for March 2017. I'm Duncan, and this being episode 61, I was reminded that 1961, the year my favourite boys' own adventure film was released, The Guns of the Never Own. And I was thinking this has become a bit of a lost genre, that kind of adventure genre. Yeah, that's a great film too. Yeah, I love I that. I love that film. Yeah. Gregory Peck. Oh, yeah. Oh, so good. And David Niven. Yeah. Anthony Quinn. Oh, also good. Yeah. Yeah, great cast. Uh, look, uh, I'm Simon. Man, I'm already really missing the hell out of the IMDb message boards. <laughs> I've tried to go, I'm like I've been on there several times in the last month and thought, oh, I'd love to see what people are saying. Yeah. I'd love to know what the feeling on this is. Love to check what people have said about this. Yeah. I miss it already. Yeah, it's amazing how much that's was something I did like to peruse. You know? yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you're right. I, I, I'm the same. Yeah. I've been on there. I'm, oh, that's right. Uh, it's not there. Yeah. <laughs> it's, like, it's like my page isn't loading properly. It's like it's not coming down yeah, the bottom. Yeah, no, exactly, exactly. <laughs> I mean, I, I think the first time I caught myself scrolling down to find them and then uh, yeah. realizing, sadly. That's it. You get to uh, like movie or trivia and then yeah. nothing but a link mm-hmm. beneath it. Yeah. yeah. I think you can still write user reviews. Is that right? You can write user reviews. And I still read those because yeah. it's it, – it, Builds a similar purpose, you know. Yeah. But it's not quite the same. No, know? it's not the same. Yeah. You can't just write overrated. Yeah, worst movie ever. Yeah. <laughs> so, Simon, what have you been watching? Well, a, a fair bit as usual, but I'm just going to focus on one thing this month that's uh, a, a, a recent release, obviously, thanks to Darren Bevan, uh, Kong Skull Island. Uh, I got a, along to Journey to Mysterious Island 3, Apocalypse Now. <laughs> See what I did there? Also known as Kong Skull Island. Uh, it's hardly a spoiler at this stage to say that Kong takes place in the same universe as Gareth Edwards' Godzilla, but it hardly takes place in the same tonal universe. Right. You know what I mean? Whereas Godzilla is dark and moody and saves its full reveal of its monster star to well into the final act. Kong slaloms recklessly from family-friendly comedy to flesh-tearing carnage and dismemberment. <laughs> it's a really, it's kind of a bit of a mess in that respect. Um, and Kong is revealed really early on mm-hmm. after an unexpected and like really inventive opening scene. Kong himself looks good, and they do a tremendous job of lighting them up against a huge orange sun as helicopters swirl around them, which is a clear nod to Apocalypse Now. We're having them demolish and then suck up a gooey-looking giant squid, which looked tremendous. His big rumble at the end has great energy and is really well staged, really clearly staged as well. Even if the big bad monsters in Kong are kind of ultimately a little bit disappointing, if you yeah. know what I mean. In fact, it's the supporting monsters that really stand out. There's a massive water buff- buffalo that emerges out of, out of a swamp, or, or this giant stick insect, which is really delightful. You know, they're both yeah. kind of passive beasties. Um, but the MVP of the big nasties is a giant spider introduced in the film's best monster scene as it impales its victims casually under its hideously long legs, you know? <laughs> and I like the fact that those deaths are accidental as opposed to the monsters attacking them, you know? Yeah, yeah. And they're so creepy. It's uh, great. And like the monsters, the supporting actors are the real star in this film. As is the case for every big CGI silly you know, monster movie nowadays, the cast is horrendously overqualified. John Goodman is a welcome presence, getting the topical line regarding the film's current day Nixon administration. Mark my words, there will never be a more screwed up time in Washington, he says. <laughs> this is delightful. And um, Samuel L. Jackson gets skull Colonel Kurtz on it, as a soldier who just can't walk back from a fight. The man our discerning listeners perhaps know best is one half of major December power couple, Tay Tom Hiddleston. <laughs> uh, Tom Hiddleston should probably have had his character rewritten. 
not to be a tough as a tough as nails ex SAS man with a chip on his shoulder. He just doesn't have the edge to pull it off. Right. You know? Yeah. I mean, he's he's fine, but I just don't buy him as a grizzled ex-SAS soldier. Yeah, that, you know? no, I understand that. Uh, Bream Larson, meanwhile, is equally underserved by a thin character and weak dialogue. And in fact, it's John C. Riley, introduced late in the film, who runs away with it, getting the best comic mo- moments, building at exposition like a pro, and getting the, few, the film's few warranted moments of pathos. Everyone else is kind of left wallowing in his wake. Right. Yeah. It sounds like a dislike Kong, I think, and I, and I really didn't. In fact, it was frequently a lot of fun, but it's eminently forgettable fun. Right. It, it reminded me less of Peter Jackson's King Kong, which, despite all the you know detractors, actually was aiming for something, you know, yeah. and, and, and trying to do something uh, big, I think. It reminded me less of that than any number of Saturday matinees we might have watched as kids, where Herbert Long plays Captain Nemo and Ray Harryhausen animates some cheap and cheery dinosaurs, you know? Mm. They were fun too, but they weren't films you'd think about in a week's time and the next matinee rolls around. Yeah. And that's kind of how I felt about um, Skull Island. Yeah, because I, I was thinking about going to see this film. I just, I kind of did want to go and see it. Uh, you know, I thought, oh, this is a big screen, slightly different movie. You know, it's a bit of a break from the superhero films. So maybe I'll go and check it out. And I just never got around to seeing it. So I'm curious to see what you thought about that. So yeah. Yeah, like I say, it, it's fine, but it's amazing to the degree um, John C. Riley steals that film from everyone. Yeah. To the point that, um, small spoiler here, um, there's kind of a, a prologue about what happens to his character after the events of the film. At the oh, end. okay. And for a character who's well down the list and is introduced halfway through, yeah. that's unusual. And I'm almost certain that's because when they've shot the film, they yeah. realised what they had and had to make more of it. Right. Like, I doubt it was in the original script. I would put money that it's not in the original script. <laughs> right. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. That's yeah. cool. Uh, where he could kind of almost came across as like a Dennis Hopper kind of character in Apocalypse Now. You're speaking about Apocalypse Now, I seems like. Right, sure, sure. You know, like you say, a lot of exposition, a lot of chatting and yeah. one-liners and stuff. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. Mm. So what about you? What have you been uh, watching? Um, well, I've seen a few films. I just one I briefly want to chat about is The Lady in the Lake, the um, 1947 experimental film that follows Raymond Chandler's Philip Marlowe on a, on a detective case, but does it from the first-person point of view. Um, only occasionally working, I thought. The film kind of lingers too long on unbroken takes with some pretty ordinary acting. And um, the story itself, I didn't think was particularly one of Chandler's best works. But I found it a nice curio from an unexpected time. It's a fascinating experiment, eh? It is, yeah. yeah. It's unusual to, to find that. It's, it's not something I would have associated with the 40s, mm. a first-person detective. Yeah. Yeah. It almost reminded me of playing a video game like L.A. Noir on the PlayStation, yeah. where you're kind of walking around in first-person and people are talking to you, and you know? Yeah, I remember talking to you about Hardcore Henry, which is the recent action That's film right. in first-person. And there's a scene where they go through this building and there is briefly a Lady in the Lake poster on the wall. Oh, really? I thought it was, oh, that's a nice nod to where this idea was first born. Right. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, maybe that came up in their research. I'd be surprised if anyone would have seen this and been inspired to do it, though. No. You know, it's quite um, it's quite plain, I thought, this yeah. film. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but look, I, I saw a couple of films that I want to chat about. The first is Ingrid Bergman in her own words, which is an intriguing documentary on the enigmatic... Swedish leading lady uh, who became an icon because of Casablanca. But as she herself says, there's so much more, and um, this film definitely shows it. After winning an Oscar, starring in three Hitchcock films, and having Hollywood basically at her feet, she went to Italy to search for a new way of making films, falling in love with the neorealist style and one of its leaders, Roberto Rossellini. America turned its back on her, but it's really only the beginning of the story. This documentary lays bare Bergman uh, as the title says, in her own words, uh, f- from excerpts of her autobiography, televised interviews, 
uh, but also her letters to her friends, like explaining her feelings and desires. Uh, and her restless nature led her around the world through many families and stages. It was an often messy life, but like a really honest one. Uh, she was always certain of who she was, so she wasn't so much as reinventing herself, rather searching for truth, not just in her art, but in her life. And it's easy to forget just how good an actress Bergman was. Uh, and this is the kind of biopic that should be industry standard, making viewers not only discover, but rediscover an artist's work. And I thought this was really, really well made. It was really captivating. It's quite long. It's over two hours. Um, they interview her children, some of her children anyway. Um, she just kind of would drop her life and go pick up a new life and continually doing this right. until the day she died. Um, oh, that sounds great. Hers has always been a really interesting story to me, but I honestly don't know a lot about it. Yeah, it's a good one. I highly recommend checking it out. The other thing is that she was fluent uh, in Swedish, English, Italian, French, and I think German. And she acted in every single language right. in different films. Wow. And she's, she's fluent. Yeah. Like, it's crazy when you hear her talk. Yeah, yeah. Um, and interviewed, you know, she's just off the cuff, ad-libbing people, asking her questions. She's like, bang, bang, bang. Yeah. It's incredible. And a lot of those weren't, like, I think Swedish and French she knew when she was a child, but she learned everything else because she had to live or work there. Ah, it's amazing. So she, yeah. That's quite a talent, eh? It is, yeah. And she came to, to Hollywood on the as a star from Sweden. And in Sweden, the industry was so small there that everyone loved her and wanted to use her, and people were fighting over right. using her on the kind of small Swedish studio system because she was so obviously far and above everyone yeah, else. Yeah. So that when she came to Hollywood, everyone was like, this woman's a star already. So she, you know, came off like, you know, like the Beatles did when they landed, you know, yeah, like yeah. waving and there was crowds and all the rest of it. So yeah, it's a fascinating story. Um, and you yeah, made me want to kind of watch so many more of her films that I haven't seen, yeah. uh, even though I've probably seen about, you know, five or six. Uh, yeah. Films. Good number. There's yeah. probably like about another 10 that I really want to check out. And the second one I wanted to chat about is as long time listeners will know, Vittorio De Sica is my favorite Italian film director. And so I was excited to watch a famous film of his I hadn't seen, which is 1961's Two Women, starring Sophia Loren. Uh, Loren won the Oscar for Best Actress, notably the first person to ever win it for a role not in English. Uh, she was just 27 years old when she played the fiery Roman mother who returns to a small village with her teenage daughter to escape the Allied bombing raids uh, during World War II. Uh, the film walks an impressive tightrope between like charming country life, gentle romance, light comedy, pointed political overtones, and just harrowing, confronting tragedy. Uh, really is just as effective today, and it must have been shocking back in 1961. Mm. Uh, Lorena is an absolute delight in the role that will shock no one to discover was intended for Anyana Magnani. Uh, if you're aware of, of her, you can just say, oh, yeah, this is totally <laughs> in her wheelhouse. Magnani was ill and she had to pass, but she was the one who suggested Loren. Um, but there's a good at least 20 years difference between Magnani and Loren. So to kind of bridge that gap, they aged the daughter down to a teenager because I think she was older. I think Loren was supposed to be the daughter originally and oh, Magnani right. was wow. going to be the, the yep. mother. So they got this you know, teenage daughter and they tried to age up um, Loren to look older it's, it's a really fearless performance and it's among the finest films from De Sica actually it works more literally than his other films uh, which are often filled with more kind of symbolism and ambiguity than the kind of just a naked emotion and definitive statements that are on display here but if you're interested in Italian cinema that deals particularly with uh, living kind of around World War II then Two Women is a really wonderful place to start right great recommendation so Dale I don't know how much you know about therapy but it usually starts by you telling me a little something about yourself. 
I work at a college as a janitor, even though I feel like I'm smarter than most of the people that go there. Sometimes I see an equation written on a blackboard, like half an equation, and I'll just figure it out. Is this Goodwill Hunting? No. Sounds a lot like the plot of Goodwill Hunting. Yeah. Anyway, my best friend is Ben Affleck. And so, Simon, what's the news? All right, so Ridley Scott has already announced that the upcoming Alien Covenant is in fact the first film in what will be a new Alien trilogy, which means I have no idea where Prometheus sits, eh, right? Yeah, that's right. Uh, but in a recent interview, he offered this intriguing aside. He said, and I quote, If you really want a franchise, I can keep cranking it for another six. I'm not going to close it down again. No way. Now, I guess he could have been referring to Blade Runner, which is getting a sequel this year. Or maybe he's finally going to give us a follow-up to the Russell Crowe-starring epic Robin Hood. <laughs> Uh, or even perhaps a long overdue expansion of the White Squall cinematic universe. Yeah. yeah. But I think he's talking Alien, which is great news for fans of disappointment. Because after a lackluster Prometheus it really delivered only sporadic, icky body horror, the Alien Covenant trailers thus far only offered up more of the same, I think. Uh, another mysterious world, another abandoned ship to explore, another idiot leaning over an alien egg that opens like a fleshy flower to seal his doom. The thought of Scott soldiering on into his 80s cranking out, as he says, more pretty but empty alien sequels fills me with dread and not the good sort of dread either <laughs> it is an interesting one isn't it because you wonder what like it's really got such a visual artist yeah and he seemed to have quite a lot of ambition that you'd think do you really want to do is that how you want to spend yeah, your golden I, I, years i just like, don't understand it yeah but also and i know i can't judge it solely on the trailer but that alien covenant trailer left me feeling a bit empty because I just thought it, it looked like, oh, you're just resetting and playing the same tropes again and I'm yeah. seeing that, that idiot leaning over an egg again and, you yeah. know, I, I just don't get any new expansion going on in that trailer. Yeah. 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 Which is, if he's going to do six of them, it's what I want. Yeah, yeah, that's know? right. Well, it seemed, it, it felt to me that they were going to address the issues of what they perceive as the issues of Prometheus by just going, oh, we'll just give you aliens again or alien again. Like, we'll take out any of the philosophical ambiguity and, you know what I mean? We're just going to give you a straight thriller. And that's what I think they're probably going to do. Yeah. Um, But that doesn't lead anywhere. That's just a self-contained straight thriller. Yeah. If you're just going to ice everyone, you know, except for Fassbender, then, you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, but I've seen Alien. I don't... No, that's yeah. right. You've seen Alien multiple times. Mm. So, yeah. And in You're Lucky, the story appeared after I'd already written this month's Tree of Woe news. Disney has said that the new Han Solo prequel will reveal how the lead character got his name. (sighs) I don't understand how that's a thing. uh... He's just named that, right? I mean, that's his name. So now he, like, lost a game of space chess and was forced to have the name Han Solo. But also, if you're going to reveal that name... Wouldn't you have that as a surprise, like in the movie? Like cook up something clever and leave it for audiences to find out in the film rather than pile expectation on yourself by announcing it two years before release? This was, uh, you know, again, this happened after I'd written my trip as well. (laughs) But yeah, this was like the most disappointing news about this franchise or or, or this, whatever they're calling it, prequel. um, Yeah, it reminded me too. Like I know a a lot of listeners, a lot of you guys out there aren't (laughs) going to agree with me, but I obviously hate Indiana Jones and The Last Crusade. (laughs) Or the fact that it had to reveal so much stuff I didn't need to know about his character's origin. Yeah. And this is the same thing. I got the same dread when I heard this news. Yeah. Like, I mean, so what are they going to say he had a name before? He was named Han Solo. Was he yeah. like, you know, Waldo or something? Or in, yeah. Um, yeah, why do we need to know this? He's like, Han Solo. That's, that's, it. that's a given. Yeah. I was just like, well, what does it matter? Who cares what his name was before? 
yeah, one of my dreads about this film in the first place is that there's going to be no backstory to anything anymore. No. I love the fact that the Kessel Run was this mysterious thing that yeah. he, he's, he's traveling around with this strange seven foot tall furry creature. I don't need that explained to me. Yeah. It's part of the mystery of the character. Yeah. And I know we've ranted on and on and on and on about this, you know, this backstory, everything's backstory. I was having a chat at work the other day and I, I, I came to the revelation after talking to people. I was like, you know what? I defy you to name me a series like uh, an action adventure superhero, whatever that's currently being made that doesn't have backstories. You know what I mean? Like we know everything about everyone. There's not, I mean, even James Bond, they've done it Han Solo. They've done it with Indiana Jones. They don't every Marvel superhero, every DC superhero, they all got backstories. You know what I mean? Yeah. Even, even Chris Pratt and guardians of the galaxy opens with his backstory. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like everyone's got a backstory. It's just there's nothing. There's nothing. There's no cool Boba Fett, Darth Vader, Han Solo, Indiana Jones, yeah, James yeah. Bond. Where it's like they're just there. They're just on a mission. They're cool. That's why you want to watch them. No, we've got to connect with these guys emotionally. It's yeah, just like, part of the strength of those really great films you're talking about is that there's a larger universe that you're aware of, but you have to imagine for yourself. Yeah, you have to go away and think. I wonder what the Kessel Run was. Yeah, what was the Clone Wars? Yeah, how did this archaeologist become this? You know? Yeah flying around the world, adventure-seeking badass, yeah. you know? But you don't want those things explained to you, even no. though you might think you do. Yeah. It's better to have them as mysteries, and yeah. you know? If the Star Wars prequels should take, taught us anything as a society, it's you don't want all these questions answered. Yeah. Because it's boring. It really is. <laughs> and also those Star Wars prequels didn't establish their own wider universe either. Yeah. Right. From sad news to sadder news, I think, and people who passed away that most folk, at least in New Zealand, one of notice news, Robert Osborne passed away at the age of 84. Mm. Osborne, for the last 20-plus years, was the face and velvety-smooth voice of Turner Classic Movies, interviewing movie stars and introducing screenings. He was briefly an actor before Lucille Ball, of all people, told him to become a writer and put his passion for Hollywood cinema to good use. He tried his hand at criticism, but his real gift was as a passionate fan whose knowledge was encyclopedic and whose love of cinema was contagious. And he became an institution, the frontsman for a company that was and is important, vital even, for keeping classic cinema alive. Um, look, I read an interview with him. He was witty, charming, and very, very informed, you know? He was also the official Oscars historian. He was, he was a confidant, too, of um, big stars. And importantly, not a gossip, either. Right. And so, to many classic stars, and therefore he was able to speak about them with genuine knowledge, you know, they would talk to him about their movies, mm. knowing that he could be trusted just... To t- talk about those movies back yeah. to the audience, you know? Um, and he came around at a time, too, where a lot of those uh, classic stars had faded away and there wasn't a natural curiosity about them, which seems yeah. strange to me nowadays as a film fan. Yeah. So he was able to talk to them and just approach them and, you know, yeah. and share their lives on screen. So, yeah, yeah, quite a hell of a loss, actually. Yeah, it is. Uh, it, it's so great that someone like that was around to catalogue all of that stuff. Yeah. And because I, I, I do fear this goes back into the... Um, you're seeing the documentary about Ingrid Bergman, is that I just kind of wonder if people will remember these even famous actors and actresses. It's kind of lo- you know lost time mm. a little yeah. bit because people are just like ah it's black and white I can't bother watching it or you know the idea of classic as well that was made in the eighties um, uh, that's a kind of a classic yeah you know so it's the the more time marches on then the 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 more those other things will be forgotten they'll just be kind of pop culture yeah. references you know oh Charlie Chaplin without having actually seen a yeah. Chaplin film. And I know you watch Turner Classic Movies. Mm, I love and, it. And um, yeah, it is great. And it's, it's a fantastic institution. Mm. It really is amazing what they've yeah. done. You know, to, to keeping that alive. Yeah. 
Well, I mean, Lady in the Lake, um, just what I spoke about, it was yeah. on TCM, Turner Classic Movies, and, and that's the sole reason I watched it. I was like, oh, this is great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and we may have reached peak whitewashing news. Ghost in the Shell has come under fire for ska- casting Scarlett Johansson in the Hollywood version of what is one of the greatest Jap- Japanese anime films. In a bizarre twist of events, the director of the original film, Mamoru Ushi, said that he didn't understand what the issue could be, saying about Johansson's character, the major is a cyborg and her physical form is an entirely assumed one. In continuing his admirably serious defense, Ushi states, the name Matoko Kusangi and her current body are not her original name and body, so there is no basis for saying that an Asian actress must portray her. Even if her original body, presuming such a thing existed, were a Japanese one, that would still apply. Um, whereas screenwriter Max Landis decided to take the David Bowie from Cat People approach and put the fire out with gasoline by taking to YouTube and saying that there were no actors of Asian origins capable of getting Ghost in the Shell greenlit at present. Max Landis, he's always classy, eh? Yeah, yeah. Always keeping it classy. Yeah, way to, way to, way to, you know, be a peacemaker there, Max. Good work, Max. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't. I, I yeah, I, I don't know about this one. I never buy that argument. And as as long as you go with the argument that there's no a- Asian actors or Japanese actors capable, mm. then that becomes a self fulfilling prophecy because they're never going to get the chance to. No, that's yeah. right. Is Scarlett Johansson that much of a lead actress that she can pull in, you know, like megabuck blockbuster numbers? You know what I mean? Like, yeah, that's my question. And I think that's actually really rarefied air. We've been over this before, but I think there are actually only a handful of actors who can genuinely pull in viewers regardless of what the material is. I think if you were to take a purely how much money have her movies made, you'd say yes. Yeah, but that's, is that because of Scarlett Johansson? Yeah, I realise that. Some. Or is it because she's in Avengers? Yeah, or Avengers. You know. but, but also uh, Lucy made a lot of money. I guess. Yeah. Did it make a lot? It made enough, actually. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. It made enough, but you know what yeah. I mean? It's kind of like... I, I mean, for what was a crazy, um, a very crazy Luc Besson film, I yeah. think it did really well. Yeah. yeah. Oh, maybe. Maybe. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the proof will be when the film comes out. Yeah. I just think maybe make better films and so that people actually start going, oh, you should go and see this because, you know, it's actually a good... Uh, make better films. <laughs> yeah. Love it. Make, make, big, make better films. That's my... That's good advice. That's good advice. No, it is. I know exactly <laughs> what you're saying, though. You did right. Yeah, yeah. Look, and finally, inevitably, predictably, horror news. MoMA, that's the Museum of Modern Art, folks, has added another film to its collection of restored and preserved titles. No less a film than Frank Henlotter's, Henlotter's, sorry, Frank, 1982 classic Basket Case. (laughs) Basket Case, just knowing that the schlocky, gory, campy slice of New York grew is now considered worthy of being part of the Museum of Modern Art's collection. Makes me incredibly happy and naturally somewhat amused. Uh, even the Henenlotto, it seems pleasantly surprised, asking them beforehand if they'd actually watched the film before they put it into collection. <laughs> oh, I love that. I love Brilliant. the fact that that's now considered kind of art, a piece of art to be preserved. Awesome. Should be in the Smithsonian. Oh, I totally should be, yeah. eh? He's hoping. Quality. That's yeah, awesome. Yeah, I love that film. <laughs> and finally for me, in uh, Shia LaBeouf news, uh, LaBeef was forced into what must have been the most terrifyingly unfamiliar role he has ever played, that of the voice of reason. Uh, he has had to shut down his artistic protest. You can probably imagine the sarcastic quotation marks around those two words. He has taken on Donald Trump, which is surprising as I kind of see LaBeef as the acting equivalent of the US president, as a flag which is hoisted at his protest that says he will not divide us, has ironically divided people, as some have tried to scale the flagpole and steal it. 
Uh, this happened not only in the US, but also in Liverpool, where Labeef uh, relocated the artistic protest to. Many claim it is the alt-right people attacking it. Some say apolitical vandals going after an easy target. And some might say people who just want to mess with Labeef. But the Transformers and Nymphomaniac star has called a halt to proceedings, saying it is dangerous. Mm. So, um, yeah, and apparently some alt-right uh, group tweeted, yeah, we're going to just keep attacking this yeah. flag. It's just, it's just such an odd thing to do. Yeah, it really is, eh? That, that people would be concerned about this in any way, shape, or form. I think those are people who saw um, Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. <laughs> yeah. I, I think that's what's happening. <laughs> yeah, it is an odd thing, though. Yeah, you're quite right. Yeah. You're quite right. I mean, Liverpool, too. Yeah. I mean, who, he, he who, t- who in Liverpool is bothered by this? I know. But he, he took it from the States. He had it in two different places in the States. It both got attacked at both places. Yeah, well, apparently they were in hidden places, too, but uh, people... Uh, People found it by watching the footage and sort of just doing yeah. a bit of research, listening to sounds and in the background and tracked it down. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. Anyone would anyone would care or notice? Yeah, it could be bothered. Yeah, <laughs> contemplate this on the tree of woe. All right, now we're up to uh, our favourite part of the show. I think I surprised you then, didn't I? Yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> uh, the tree of woe, where we get to punish cinematic offenders from our month in cinema. So, Duncan, what's annoyed you this month? Look, far be it from me to agree with Brett Ratner about, well, <laughs> anything really, <laughs> but he's come out swinging at Rotten Tomatoes and said that it is, quote, destroying film, bemoaning the fact that the words DC Cinematic Universe and Critical Annihilation have become synonymous on this podcast in particular and as a concept to the general public. But he lays much of the blame for Batman vs. Superman at the feet of Rotten Tomatoes, claiming its current 27% is not a fair indication of what he calls a successful movie, which I'm assuming he means in financial terms rather than artistic or critical ones. Um, he goes on to evoke Pauline Keel and how he loves critics, but is basically saying the individual layers of separate criticism have been mashed into a single patty and thrown onto the barbecue of hate and been char-grilled roasted. Now, on this point, I kind of tend to agree, and not because of Batman vs Superman, which I still haven't seen and probably never will, but because my own movie choosing habits have mutated over the last few years. And now the first place I go to is the internet, and often it's looking at the Rotten Tomatoes score. Now, this has a disproportionate influence on my decision-making process. Once again, Batman vs. Superman won't be affected by Rotten Tomatoes for me. The trailer did far more damage than 100 critics could ever do. But it does make an impact on smaller, obscure films. Now, at the risk of failing to not want to sound like a curmudgeonly old man, I fear for, like, the hidden gem... Those viewer discoveries that are like really personal, we all have films that are special to us, and part of their charm is that no one else really knows about them. Uh, or even maybe if they do know about them, they don't actually like them. <laughs> so I lay down the five-film challenge to myself and to anyone out there who wants to accept it. The next five films that pique my interest, I'm just going to watch them. I'm not going to look about them or anything. Or do what we used to do two decades ago. Go back and forth between staring at the covers of the film for half an hour until you're forced to choose because, like, you know, your parents are going to, like, take you out of the VHS store. So to appropriate my co-host's phrase, I'm not really sure who I'm putting up on the tree of woe this month. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe it's my laziness. Maybe it's the homogenization of critical thought. But shockingly, the only one not going up on the tree of woe is Brett Ratner. It's it's amazing, eh? But that, (laughs) that, that quote you read out of... I cannot argue with what he's saying. Yeah, and I think the thing is, I think he's kind of doing it for a reason I don't necessarily agree with. It's like, dude, that's not the reason that, you know what I mean? Like, just, again, hark back to my earlier point. It's not complicated. Just make a better film. Yeah. Um, But I I do find it does tend to shut down film discussions. It's like, oh, well, that's only got 42% of Rotten Tomatoes, so you're wrong. 
you know, as if anything less than 70% is artistically invalid. I haven't had a film discussion like that, and if I did, I'd walk away from it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't, I don't mean one-on-one with people, but again... On the know, internet, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Ye old uh, IMDb boards. Yeah. Those kind of things tend to happen. It's kind of seen as this kind of gospel truth. And I think the thing is, you can look at an individual critic and kind of go, well, they have a prejudice against something which I, that I know about. So like Pauline Keel, like, hated Clint Eastwood films. Yeah. And you kind of knew that. And so yeah. I like Clint Eastwood films. Yeah, so, me too. And that's fine. That doesn't mean that she's wrong. Or, you know, Linda Moulton would be a bit more of a traditionalist. So he kind of liked the older films. Anything kind of edgy or, or you know, kind of you know, like Lynchian or something, which I liked, he wouldn't necessarily kind of get into. Yeah. So I, I knew that. But whereas with Rotten Tomatoes, it's kind of like, well, I yeah. see that as um, as a valid concern anyway. Uh, and, and more to do with me myself. I'm like, yeah, sometimes... I'll kind of look at a, a film and I'll go, is this going to be worth recording off Sky or is this going to be worth hunting down, you know, at, at a VHS or at a video store or whatever? Yep. Not that they exist anymore, but you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, no, I don't. I mean, I know what I like and I know what I'm excited about. And I, more importantly, I know what I don't like. I know what, you know. Yeah. But it's those things in between, those 50 percenters that maybe I don't, in quotes, waste my time with anymore right, as much. Right. That's interesting. I used to, probably. Yeah, I don't really go on, uh, check out those sort of sites, to be mm. honest. I think I just go from... I'll hear about a film and then I'll hear about the director did another film and I, I just go from leaping wildly depending on what I've heard. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. Like if somebody, uh, you know, if I heard, oh, there was this great uh, horror film that came out a couple of years ago that no one's heard of and I'm like, oh, really? I'll, I'll check that out and then yeah. I might see the director did something else and I'll jump on that. So yeah. more of a scattered path for yeah. me. Yeah. yeah. But, um, yeah, that's a really interesting point that Ratna makes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there's a, there's a, the last time I've said those words. <laughs> And so, uh, what's going up on the tree away for you? All right, look, as I said earlier, the IMD message boards are gone, and I miss them already. Several times in the last month, I wanted to click at the bottom of the IMD page and wade through some bitter trolls, vile and venom, to extract the nugget of insight and wisdom that I just knew lurked somewhere within. Uh, I tell you what I don't miss, though. It's those folks who have to swing for the longest fence, taking a good film, or even just an okay film, and calling it worst film ever. <laughs> uh, but it turns out, unsurprisingly, of course, those people are everywhere. And it was brought home to me after the complete schmozzle that was the best film award at this year's Oscars. Like a lot of folk, like my colleague here even, I felt confident La La Land would win best film. Mm. It wasn't the film I necessarily thought should win. That was eventual win of Moonlight, actually. But I was at peace with the idea of La La Land, a film I enjoyed quite a bit taking out the award. And then the envelope got switched, Beatty and Dunaway got all confused, and the rest is history. And maybe it's because La La Land got so close, and maybe it's because the La La backlash had already begun. But it felt that there was a definite sense of relief out there that turned into a strong feeling of, if you, La La Land. <laughs> For the next few days, I couldn't avoid people declaring, good job, La La Land sucked. And generally delighting in the misfortune of the film that was the best film, if only for a few bewildering moments. And it really got on my nerves, because while I don't believe it was the best film on the night, I don't believe La La Land sucked either. Mm. You know, On the unofficial IMDb spectrum of best film ever to worst film ever, I think it's a sits pretty comfortably in the upper half of that equation. But sucked. Sucked. If you think La La Land sucked, my friends, you're breathing some pretty rarefied cinematic air. <laughs> you know, you must be existing on a diet of Citizen Kane and Hitchcock's finest, <laughs> perhaps knocking back the old odd ozu between trips to the Goddard well as a palate cleanser. <laughs> you know, and if you think La La Land sucked, then I think you need to watch a lot more films. I watched a film called Hospital Massacre this month. <laughs> It starred a playboy bunny who was being pursued around a hospital by a masked killer who wheezed like an asthmatic warthog. Every single character Barwan stared at the starlet at the centre of this mess with, with a look that said either, I want to kill you or I want to have sex with you. 
in this film's universe, both looks are exactly the same, by the way. <laughs> now, that's a film that sucked. But I'll tell you what else sucks. The blowflies that will be infesting your flesh that the vultures have torn from your bones as you spend eternity on the tree of woe, contemplating where the hell your unreasoning hatred for La La Land springs from. Yep, I agree. Yeah, I mean, people just, it's extreme, you know? Yeah. That film doesn't suck. No, it doesn't suck. You know, no. I think it's a pretty damn good film. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I mean, like, I was, as we said in the last podcast, I mean, I, I was I was less impressed with it than you were, but yeah. I still think it was good, you know? And, yeah, and, yeah, I, yeah, and yeah. I, I still think there's elements in that which are which are great, actually. Oh, totally. I accept Lord, yeah. which I think was where you came from. Yeah. And, and that's an entirely fair argument. But people who just have to define films as either great or sucked yeah. annoy the heck out of me. Yeah. But it also goes into that. It, it's like... <laughs> It's like watching that. I, I wa- let's, let's briefly chat about the Academy Awards as well because we, we yeah we haven't done it. We haven't done it. So I rewatched the Academy Awards. I, I kind of watched the speeches and I didn't watch the stuff in between. Um, you rewatched the Academy Awards. Well, because I'd only seen the spe- speeches. I hadn't seen any of the in between stuff. So I hadn't seen any of Jimmy Kimmel stuff oh, or yeah. any of those. All any of that things. Uh, commitment, my friend. Well, it's because it was at work and then where they had it on TV. So they just turn it on when someone won and you hear the speech and then it turned off. Uh, and I missed the end of it. I had it recorded, and I missed the end of it because I was like, I missed Chazelle win for director, and I missed the, the the infamous ending. So I hadn't seen it, and uh, then everything, of course, happened, and all the rest of it. And I had it recorded, and I got towards the end of it, and I I knew what was coming, and it was like watching a, a horror film or something, or something where you knew something bad was coming. I was like, I can't handle this. Yeah, I know what's coming. I know how bad it's going to be, and but also I had so much empathy for everyone involved in that. Like, knowing oh. what was coming, I was like, this is like watching a, a war film or something. It's like, it's, it's just it's terrifying. Yeah, no, everyone's a loser in that situation. Yeah. That producer uh, from La La Land who got yeah. the Moonlight guys up, I have so much respect for him. Yeah. He handled that like a pro. He did, And yeah. what would have been a horrible scenario. It must have been terrible, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, but yeah, watching that again. So, so we were pretty close with our um, with our things. We only got uh, a couple wrong, I think. Oh, yeah. We had a, a, a work pool, which uh, I won. Oh, fantastic. Uh, yeah, I, annoyingly, I changed my mind on one pick, which was I uh, picked Denzel as best actor, right, which, of course, yeah. I should not have changed. I had a last minute, just because I loved his performance so much yeah. and I wanted it to win. But I should have gone with what I thought was, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that was one. Um, and also kind of one I wanted to, you know, throw in the mix as being slightly different from everyone else. Because otherwise, I think we probably would have, you know, my feeling was Affleck's probably got the sign up, but I kind of want Denzel yeah. to win. And yeah, he, I do too. And... Um, but I, I think, you know, the only one that got real clearly, clearly wrong was, was La La Land because I thought that was going to be a clean sweep. I thought there was no way they were going to go for Moonlight over La La Land. So it was quite interesting that they did. Um, yeah, it took me yeah. by surprise. So so that and Denzel we got wrong, but uh, everything else I think we got right. Yeah, yeah. I think so, yeah. Yeah, but um, yeah, so it was an enjoyable Academy Awards at the end of it, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Man. Spoiler alert. So look, uh, that's our month. Uh, what was your favourite film this month? I talked about both of them actually, and I'd really suggest hunting them both out. Ingrid Bergman, in her own words, and Two Women. Uh, one because it's a documentary, which I think is fantastic, and I think everyone will enjoy it. So Ingrid Bergman, in her own words. And if you get a chance to see Two Women, if you see it crop up on TCM, <laughs> um, then then have a watch because it, it's 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 great, it's brilliant, and I, I just. Cements again why I love to seek her the most of uh, the Italian filmmakers. Um, and so, what about you, Simon? What's your favourite film? Uh, I'm going to say, and I didn't talk about this earlier, but I'm going to say Nocturnal Animals. Oh, right. Yeah, Perfect. you know, Tom Ford's deliriously lovely looking, long awaited second feature after a superb first film, 
a single man. After a season of watching fairly straightforward Oscar contenders, it was refreshing to sit down to Ford's twisty tale of murder, revenge, and regret. Uh, Aaron Taylor Johnson was rewarded with a Golden Globe for a showy and terrifying villainous performance. Uh, Michael Shannon was Oscar nominated, but yet again, I find myself marvelling at how great Jake Gyllenhaal is. Yeah, you know he is on one serious streak. Eh? Yeah. Um, Amy Adams is also really fine in a year when nothing she did got enough attention. But it's forwards handling of the material that had me in trance. And I thought about this film for days afterwards. Yeah, I did and the that's, same. That's something that doesn't happen often. Yeah, I, I was the same. I think I I said this last month. Um, yeah, was with the film, and it was a film that stuck with me for that very reason. I did think about it afterwards. You know, we were talking. You were talking about Kong Skull Island going in and out of your brain pretty swiftly. Yeah. Um, this is the reverse where you're kind of like you're watching it and you're like, okay, what have I watched? And then I kept thinking about it, kept discussing it. You know what I mean? Yeah, with yeah, and, t- totally. Me too. So. Me too. That might sound like a simple thing, but it's it's, it's just to be applauded. It is. It happens yeah. so rarely. Yeah. So, no, I agree. Oh, I just want to quickly say as well, um, I watched I Am Not a Serial Killer. Oh, did you? Yes, did you enjoy it? I really enjoyed it. Yeah. I yeah. It was great. And uh, Crystal Lloyd, fantastic. And I don't know whether I just didn't kind of catch what was going on, but right at the end of it, it was a, there was a real twist. Mm. And, and I didn't see that coming. Mm. You know what I'm talking I don't want to ruin it for anyone who hasn't listened. But I didn't see that coming. I, I, I was like, I almost want to watch it again to see whether I just kind of missed what was going on, whether I'm supposed to have figured out that twist earlier. I'm not sure. Right. Uh, yeah. Uh, anyway. Okay. So, so, say no more. Say no more. So we'll have discussed off mic about it. But um, if you haven't got a chance to see it, then check out I'm Not yeah, a Serial Killer. It's a really fine example of that sort of B film. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Beautiful. No. So next week, we're going to release the deep dives section of the podcast. Which this month is on? John Woo. John Woo, yep. cinematic hero of both of ours. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I can remember the first time discovering Hard Boiled. What a life-changing moment that was. Oh, fantastic. It was the same. So um, that's something that we probably bonded on pretty early, I imagine. You yeah, and I, I think so. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, John Woo is obviously somebody hugely influential to us, you know, yeah. but such an influential action director as well. Such an yeah. amazing, you, you, you know, there was a period there, especially in Hong Kong, of about seven years we just redefined action cinema. That's right. You know, and um, was courted by America and made at least one absolute corking action classic. And yet I think now he's, he's somewhat a little bit forgotten now that he's returned to China and just yeah. now he's fully making Chinese films for a Chinese audience. That's right. They yeah. don't really travel. But for a while there, this he was just this incredible force, Yeah, you know, in cinema. And I think it'd be really good to like uh, – introduce him back again and see what what he's left behind, what his legacy is. Yeah, exactly. And see um, how we feel about him, you know, more than 20 years after discovering him. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And so, uh, yes, join us for that. And so the song we're going out to by Billy Bragg and Wilco, a song called Ingrid Bergman. Now, this was actually written by Woody Guthrie, who's a big influence of Bob Dylan. He wrote the song, but he never recorded it. But uh, I believe Guthrie's estate kind of opened up the vaults right. to um, Billy Bragg and Wilco and said, hey, you guys do do some Guthrie songs. And this was one of them. So this is all about actually the uh, time when Ingrid Bergman went off with Rosalini and filmed on, uh, on the island of Stromboli, as you'll hear. And so thanks to everyone for listening. And um, we will check you out next week. All right. See you then. Ingrid Bergman, Ingrid Bergman. Let's go make a picture On the island of Stromboli Ingrid Bergman Ingrid Bergman, you're so pretty You'd make any mountain quiver You'd make fire fly from the crater 
great Bergman This old mountain It's been waiting All its life For you to work it For your hand To touch its hard rock In great Bergman In great Bergman If you Walk across my camera I will flash the world your story I will pay you more than money Ingrid Bergman Not by pennies, dimes, nor quarters But with happy sons and daughters And they'll sing around Stromboli Ingrid Bergman This old mountain, it's been waiting all its life for you to work it For your hand to touch its hard rock Ingrid Bergman Ingrid Bergman But because I am mad, I hate you Because I am mad, I have betrayed you And because I am mad, I'm rejoicing in my heart Without a shred of pity, without a shred of regret